Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Christian Schlinker. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, before we jump into our text together, let me pray for us uh, this morning. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you for um, time to just be together in this space. Lord, thank you for time to be together um, where we don't just check who we are at the door, but a place where we can come and be honest with all that we're thinking, all that we're feeling, all the emotions that um, are running through our heart and our soul. Lord, I just pray today that um, your gospel, the good news, would shine in the midst of all of that that whatever we're coming in here with, that we would trust you. Um, not tritely, not to, to pacify somehow, but Lord, that we would actually just let your light shine in the midst of it. Lord, I pray that uh, today as I preach, that, Lord, you would use my words for your glory. Lord, I pray above all else that you would just get glory in this place. Thank you. Thank you for all your good and your lovely and your gracious gifts. To your name we pray. Amen. Over the last couple weeks, there's been a stand-up special that's been taking the world by storm. And it's interesting because the reason that it's been taking the world by storm isn't just because it's funny. But the reason it's been taking the world by storm is because it was filmed over a year in isolation. The comedian decided when the lockdown happened in California to just start filming himself in his apartment. And he started filming these bits over time. And what was so interesting to me as I watched it wasn't just that it was funny, but also that it reflected the mental health status of many of us as the year progressed. As the year went on, his hair got longer, his beard got longer, he became more unkempt, his humor got darker, it became more desperate over time. And you could tell that he was also wrestling with the mental health struggles of being in isolation. In fact, uh, one of my college students from when I was a college pastor uh, posted something online this week talking about how it actually helped her walk through her own emotions of the season, her own mental health struggles, her own depression as she watched this special. And why I think it's related with so many people is because that is our narrative in this season. In fact, just a month ago, Pew Research did a study where they asked people how they were doing now, how they were doing a year and a half into this pandemic, kind of on the way out, hopefully, of this other side of the pandemic, how people were doing. And what they found is that the mental health stats have actually virtually not changed from the middle of the pandemic. One third of Americans said that they had experienced anxiety and sleeplessness in the prior week. Another third said that they 
that the COVID outbreak had actually changed their life in a significant way. Something that would change the trajectory of where they were going. And nearly 50% said that they either had a high level of psychological distress or an above average level of psychological distress. And I would venture a guess that these stats are true of many of us in this room or those watching online. Because many of us have felt anxiety and despair, frustration, anger, shame, hurt, and depression in this season. Or others have had maybe way too much time to think about old hurts and wounds. Or they've been triggered by the events in our world. And this has led to this battle in our souls, this wrestling match between the false self and the true self. See, we have internal voices and arguments, these things that are pulling us back and forth. We have voices that we don't know where they came from that pull us into places of despair. And let's be honest, sometimes when we come into spaces like this, it's not always helpful to have these conversations. When I was growing up, I remember... uh, going to the church and talking to my pastor and telling him I was depressed and they told me that I just needed to believe a little more. And what I've wondered ever since then is does the gospel actually speak here? Does the gospel actually have something to say to our mental health struggles? Does it actually have something true and good? Not just something that says believe a little more, do better, try harder, but something that actually gives us light and hope in the midst of our struggles. And so this summer, we actually just want to take time and ask that question about a variety of mental health issues and learn how we can have emotional intelligence that's not just rooted in doing better or trying harder, but rooted in a deep-seated way of the gospel. But to do that, we actually have to start by understanding the false self, the thing that's rooted, or a lot of these issues are rooted in. And so today, we're actually going to take a look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus calls us to new life. But before we jump into this new orientation of life that Jesus uh, calls us to, we first have to understand how he got here. Namely, how he's laid out the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. So stick with me. I'm going to run through the Sermon on the Mount really quick. I know it sounds like a lot, but I promise it'll be worth it in the end. The sermon opens up in Matthew 5 with Jesus sitting down on the side of a mountain and beginning to teach. Now, this is a really normal practice. The ways that teachers taught in that time is they would actually sit and their students would stand, which I personally really like that idea if we ever want to go that way. But Jesus sits and he starts to teach on the side of the mountain, and it seems like a really unremarkable thing. But for a reader of the book of Matthew at that time, it would have been an unbelievably remarkable thing. So far, Matthew's laid out that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's another point where God descends on a mountain in the early history of Israel. In Exodus 19, after God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, after he liberates them from slavery, after he leads them out from a place of oppression, he leads them to the Mount Sinai. At the Mount Sinai, he actually descends on the mountain to come and speak to his people, to give them a new way of living in the world. 
But there's something interesting about this. As he descends on the mountain, he actually gives a set of instructions for the people of Israel. He says, come ritually cleansed. Don't let your animals touch the mountain. And don't you, you, you don't touch the mountain as well. Because if you touch the mountain, there will be dire consequences because I'm holy. And as God descends on the mountain, there's all these, this lightning and thunder. And the people of God, the people of Israel are a little bit freaked out. It actually says almost the implication in the passage is that they took a step back farther from the mountain. But here, God does something new. See, Jesus goes up on the mountain, and he doesn't just go up and tell everyone, stand away, I'm holy. But Jesus, the Son of God, God with us, God incarnate, comes and invites the people to come to him as they are. So that one little sentence at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount that reframes everything is Jesus invites people to come and hear his new way of living. That God has descended to be with his people to share his wisdom and ways. And as Jesus begins to speak throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of a new rule of life, a new way of operating in the kingdom. Now, the word rule may sound stressful to you. I promise, as a rule breaker, it sounds stressful to me. But it actually just really means a commitment to live your life in a certain way in this context. For us, it's actually just a gentle guide that keeps us trained towards God. And this is because the kingdom that Jesus speaks about all throughout the Sermon on the Mount is different than the kingdom of this world. See, the kingdom of this world tells us, do better and try harder, that you're defined by your merit. But the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, is a counterintuitive one. Because here, a different type of people are the ones that are blessed. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, because they'll see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall become, be called sons and daughters of God. And as the sermon continues on, it becomes really clear that it's not the rich and powerful the ones who have made much of their lives, that are given much, but those who are willing to submit all of life to God. The kingdom's open for all who come. But it is a, it is a serious call. It's a call to submit everything to Jesus, our politics, our sexuality, our emotions, our status, our relationships, our internal and our external lives to God. See, Jesus gives this kingdom manifesto, one that redefines all that we are in light of God's wisdom and work in the world. See, all it and all it requires is submission of self to the kingdom of God. It requires a submission of our very identities. See, discipleship as it's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount is a laying down of all of self for the kingdom of God. And it's against this background, after all of these things, that's a big sweeping overview. Go read it. It's an incredible passage. It's an incredible sermon. Much better than anything you'll hear today. And it's against this background that Jesus comes to the very last words of his sermon. 
the whole passage builds towards this crescendo. The question that Jesus asks when he asks, what will you build your life on? Let me read it again for you. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. See, Jesus starts by saying, the wise are those who hear and obey. For, see, for him, it's not just an idea of hearing what God has to say, but also obeying what he has to say, doing what he has to say. It's obedience to the way of the kingdom, obedience that designates people as citizens of that kingdom. And this may, again, we just talked about this, right? It may sound like it's merit-based or overly harsh, but you have to realize that this would directly connect to the context of the people that Jesus is talking to. Because the history of the people of Israel is littered with this idea that hearing and doing are connected. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses lays out the positive and negative results of what will happen if the people of God obey and listen to the voice of God. In Joshua 1, the call to be strong and courageous is linked to listening and obeying God's commands. Here, those who listen to the words of God are like that wise man who heard and then built their house on the rock. And this would have immediately resonated with the people in that area. Because in that geographical area, they lived in an arid desert filled with plains and dry creek beds. But every fall, every autumn, there were floods. And when those floods came, they knew that they were going to get a test of how well they built their house. Because if they didn't build their house well, that flood, those flash floods, were going to wash away their home. And in the same way, those who hear and obey, who build their lives on Jesus, will be like those who built a home that can withstand the storms of life. And yet, while the beauty of the life built on a rock is one of stability and security, the one that stands up in the midst of storms, there's also another way of response and a warning. See, Jesus doesn't just give one example, but he gives two. He says, those who ignore my words, who build their life on something else, it'll be like a foolish man who builds their life on sand. That term foolish man in Greek actually means moron. And the reason why, it doesn't mean that if you're not listening to God, you're some kind of moron. But what it actually means is that they knew if you built your house on the sand in that time, only a foolish person would build a house that they knew was going to collapse when the rains came. Uh, my kids watch this show called The Word World. It's really goofy. It's all about building things with words. But there's this one episode that sticks out in my mind where they keep building a sandcastle by the ocean that they want to live in. And every night it gets washed away by the tides and they can't figure out why it's happening. And as I was watching the episode, I like wanted to shake the TV and be like, stop building it by the water. Because like that's like, it seems ridiculous and silly because we know that sandcastles get washed away at night. And in the same way, it's saying, build your life on something that won't get washed away. 
Build your life on something that when the storms come, won't just float off. We have to be careful. One has to be careful not just to hear the words of God, but to do it, to obey it. To build one's life on something that will not just pass. But we have to realize there is a massive tension for us here, though. At least there's a massive tension for me. That this is much easier said than done. And also, sometimes in desperation, we build our lives on something hoping for fulfillment and security. Sometimes we're unknowingly building our lives on something and seeing it as the only option. And we hope that as time goes on, that it'll fulfill us. That this time, the story will be enough to carry us. And sometimes it's not a rapid fading away, but rather an erosion over time. But either way, those things are sand just the same, whether we realize it in the moment or not. I've, I've spent a lot of time doing work in Quito, Ecuador with a couple of churches. And one of, my first time I went down there, I think I was 16 or 15 or 16 years old, and we worked with this, this area that was condemned by the city because it was a mudslide zone. But that didn't stop people from building homes there. They just built homes because that was the only place they could afford or build. One day we were walking up the hill, and I was talking to our translator, and he said, look over there. He said, that those homes are going to go. And over the next week, we watched as these three homes on the side of the mountain just faded just were washed away by the rains and by the storms as they fell off the side of the mountain. In that desperation, they built their house somewhere that wasn't solid. I thought it might be, and they held on to hope. But even so, those homes were washed away. And Jesus here wants to show us that life on the rock is one of stability, while life built on the sand is something that will fade and wash away. And this sermon ends with this call to build a life on the rock that's the way of the kingdom of God. And it's a beautiful call, one that invites us to put off spurious discipleship and instead to follow Jesus in intentionality and submission. And you may be wondering, what does this have to do with emotional intelligence? How does this passage meet us as we process how God speaks to us in the struggles of our mental health and emotions? See, Jesus actually invites us in this passage into deeper reflection, calling us to ask, what have we built our lives on? See, there's two ideas in this passage. There's two ways of living. The way of the false self and the way of the true self. See, the false self is the lies that we tell about ourselves, the, the stories and the narratives that shape the kingdom of man. That internal voice that tells you that you're an inadequate and a failure, that you won't amount to much, or that you need to build your life on something else. But the opposite is the true self, our definition and identity in Christ, that you are a son and daughter with an inheritance, that you're made for more than mere languishing in the world around you, that God has made you in his image and called you to follow him with all of life. And we have to be so careful because the self we choose can define our very lives. See, there's a danger in building your life on the false self. The false self, whether it seems like a good thing in the moment or not, 
is a slow roll towards the road of ruin, one that is sinister and dastardly as it eats our very souls. See, all of us recognize this. We all intellectually under realize that building our lives on something fleeting will lead to ruin in some way, shape, or form. But far too often, we can look around and see everyone else's homes that are built on sand dunes without recognizing the very sand dune that we sit upon ourselves. Thomas Merton, a, a monk that's written quite a bit about this, wrote it in, this, in his book, New Seeds of Cont uh, Contemplation. Every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. We're not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones that we cherish about ourselves. See, we have to start by recognizing the false selves in our lives, beginning with understanding the stories that we tell ourselves. 2017, uh, Jean M. Twenge wrote an article in The Atlantic called, Have Smartphones destroyed a generation. And in this article, she wrote this, the twin rise of the smartphone and social media has caused an earthquake of magnitude we've not seen in a very long time, if ever. There is a compelling evidence that the devices we've placed in young people's hands are having profound effects on their lives and making them seriously unhappy. And it's not just true about young people. It, in fact, she's not alone in this, but more, more studies have come out recently about how constant connection to the news is making us more anxious as people. 2016, Cal Newport, a professor at Georgetown, spoke on how our attention span is getting shorter due to the influence of notifications and the constant things that are bombarding us. And in fact, since 2012, there has been a steady decline of happiness and fulfillment in society. In 2012 was when more than 50% of people in the West had smartphones. There may be a connection. And it, it's not just the series of devices. Don't hear me say that devices are bad. I'm not saying you should go to the Rio Grande and throw your smartphone into the river after this service. That's not the application. But what it is, is that we are constantly bombarded by a different narrative and a different story. We are constantly being told a different thing. See, until we take stock of the stories that are shaping us, the ways that the kingdom of man is pulling on our affections, we won't be able to understand the ways that our false self is being shaped. The ways that the stories we tell affect our mental health. Because the false self is empty. It's the jealousy you feel as a friend tells you about a promotion. It's the anxiety you feel about being found an imposter. It's that deep sense of dread you feel about see, being seen as less. It's the anger that you feel towards a neighbor rather than the injustice itself. It's the shame that you feel about not doing enough. It's the languishing you feel because your life is nothing like those others that you see on social media. It's the, pro the problem is that all of those things are legitimate feelings. I'm not saying that those do better, try harder, push them away. They're legitimate things that rise up in us. But if those are the things that undergird our sense of self, we will get washed away. When the storms of life come, our discipleship will be in a narrative that will also be washed away by the storm. 
We need a better narrative, a better story to build our lives on. Because you're not defined by your deepest struggles and the emotions that weigh on you. But instead, we're called and invited to build our life on the rock, the true self. See, there's hope in building your life on the rock. See, the other option is building your life upon the true self. The true self rests in the promise that the gospel meets us in our internal battles. That when calamity comes, that we can have hope in the true self because we, the true self has been given to us in Christ. In Ephesians, Paul writes that those who follow Jesus are called sons and daughters, that they're given an inheritance, and as we heard read over us earlier, are not defined by what they have done or left undone, but by God's grace. That Jesus has not called us to follow, that Jesus has called us to follow him, but does so out of the true story of God with us, not a distant and far off God that doesn't care about us. A God who came to sit among his people and teach them about his kingdom. A God who came to tell us who he is and show us a better way. The one who with authority, when he spoke, people listened. The Jesus who laid down his very life so that we may live and that was resurrected that we may have hope. And if he can do that, then he can certainly resurrect us from our current struggles and pains. We have hope because we've been given a true self, a truer self that has been found in Jesus. And we have to remember this as we're faced with what many are calling an unprecedented mental health crisis. That, is the fa- that the false self calls, but that the voice of Jesus calls louder. That we can trust that Jesus meets us even here. Or as Thomas Merton writes later on, Therefore, there is only one problem which all my existence, on which all my existence, my peace and my happiness depend, to discover myself in discovering God. See, there's a battle internally, one that wages war for our affections and our actions, one that encourages us to build our lives on either a true self or a false self. So the question then is, how are you doing? Truly. Do you recognize the false self that's in all of us? Do you realize the stories that you tell yourself? See, as we start this series, we're going to talk about the ways that the gospel impacts these places. We're going to talk about the way that the gospel transforms. But first, we actually have to know ourselves to examine honestly what's going on internally. To see the story of the true self, of presenting the entirety of who we are before Christ, that it starts by realizing the stories we tell, the narratives of the false self. That That it starts by taking stock of the internal battles that we wage, and then opening up our lives to community and care, and to the true story of the gospel. Remembering that even in those places that the false self has found a grasp on us, that the light of the gospel can penetrate even there. Trusting that it's never too late to build your house on the rock and trusting the God that makes all things new. I say all this because I know it all too well. When I was in sixth grade was the first time that I wanted to kill myself. And for many years, I struggled with that battle going back and forth. And this isn't, my testimony is too long. I won't share it with you now. 
but God met me in that place of despair and depression. And I'd love to tell you that like some miraculous thing, like I read the Bible and then all of a sudden I wasn't depressed anymore, but that's not how that works. But over time, as I've gotten to know the wisdom and the way of Jesus, he's met me there. And over time, as I've had the gift of counseling and Christian mentors and people like that, Jesus has met me there. And over time, it's been something that I've been able to walk through to recognize my true identity in Christ rather than that false self that tells me that I'm worthless. But it doesn't mean that that false self ever stops calling. Last night, I found myself uh, at about 11 o'clock at night wandering the neighborhood, wondering if I actually believe any of these things that I'm saying up here. Because if I'm being honest, I don't always believe these things. I don't always believe that it's worth laying it all down for the sake of the kingdom. And I don't always believe that the true self is true of me. And I don't always believe that my false self is not the truer self. But what I do believe in is Jesus. The Jesus who said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Jesus who came to seek and save the lost. Jesus who came to seek and save me. And Jesus who came to seek and save you. Jesus who calls me his brother and says that I am, not, I am defined by him and not by my false self. And Jesus who gives me hope that one day he will make all things new. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you that is we are not steadfast, you are steadfast. That you are the rock that we can build our lives upon. That Jesus, that you don't call us to believe away our struggles, but to bring our struggles to you and to wrestle with them before you. Lord, I pray that this morning, whatever is going on in everyone in this room's hearts and souls, the things that we're wrestling with, the narratives and the stories that we tell, that Jesus, you would meet us there. That we would trust you. That we would trust in your goodness. Remember your mercy. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the ways that you meet us here. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.